astonishing things that happens to me when I come to worship. I'm suddenly struck by the remembrance that I'm not just worshiping with you, with the the, the brothers and sisters that I've gathered to, to sing praise with, but that I'm gathered in worship with Christians all over the world and that in every place there are people giving witness that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I love giving witness to that uh, through this series that we're, that we're doing called The Disciples' Path, where uh, every service is hearing from the same scriptures and unfolding the same sermon. The message you're going to hear from me today is the, the same one Woods is delivering over in the, the festival service. When he hear, is here next week, you know that what you hear from him uh, is the same thing that I'm going to be preaching over there because it is one Lord and one purpose and one mission that we seek to serve as members together. And I'm particularly grateful to share with you one of uh, my very favorite scripture passages. Uh, We talked last week about prayer. I cherish the prayers that we have from Jesus. And that's what today's scripture is from John chapter 17. I invite you to, to hear it now. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am in the world so that they may have the full measure of joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you God would take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. And my prayer is not for them alone. Hear this part. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. And I in them and you in me. So that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. And whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Back in the 40s, there was an atheist philosopher who wrote a play that became a big hit, and it became famous in particular for one single line in it where uh, one of the characters turns to those who are with him, and he says, hell is other people. Maybe you've heard that line. Maybe you've believed it. Well, uh, back then in the 40s, this play from John Paul Sartre, No Exit, was a big hit, but there was a Christian who disagreed with him. And so a year after No Exit came out, uh, a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis, you've probably heard of him, came out with a book with the exact opposite premise. He decided to write a book about people in hell, but in his story, he wrote it about a bus ride that goes from hell to heaven. And if you've never read the book, The Great Divorce, just go out and do it. Uh, Buy it on your your Kindle or uh, get it here as fast as you can. It's a great book. It's short. It's easy. It's fun. It's a little bit goofy because Lewis's understanding of hell is not a place of fire and brimstone. But when he describes hell, uh, he describes it as a city. And the defining feature of this city is that it is a place where anyone can build a new house just by thinking about it. And because of this, because of the easiness with which people can build their homes, that's what happens anytime somebody argues with their neighbor or gets upset with who they are around. You get mad at someone, you move. 
You feel ashamed, you move. The hell that Lewis imagines is one in which the city continues to grow wider and wider and where our isolation makes us suspect our neighbors and our suspicion makes us fearful and that fear just makes us more and more isolated until we are farther and farther apart than we ever would have imagined. If that doesn't sound like hell to you, I encourage you to read your Bible. And particularly, I encourage you to check out the last three chapters of the book of Judges. If you haven't yet, you are in for a nasty surprise. The last three chapters of Judges, they are this series of escalating disasters as things get worse and worse and worse. And it is raw and it is violent and it is not the sort of thing that is fit for network television. And at the end of the last three chapters of of Judges, we are given these words to sum up the kind of hell on earth that the nation of Israel has fallen into. We are told, quote, the Israelites set out from there at that time, heading home to their respective tribes and clans. They all left there for their own territories. And in those days, there was no king in Israel. Each person did what they thought to be right. Each person did what they thought to be right. You know, it is not right. When I go to the movie theater, they charge me an arm and a leg for a Coke and the floor is still sticky. That's why I've got a big screen TV at my house so that I can watch movies the right way in the right setup. Of course, let's have some important caveats with TV. There's so much that's junk out there. So many of the shows are the same. That's why I'm really glad to live in a world of cable and of streaming so I can watch what is actually good. Of course, we all know that that only works for a handful of things, for sports and for dramas, television and streaming. They don't help us with politics, do they? Because it turns out everybody is wrong about politics. There is no right channel. There's only like 4,000 people in the country who have the right opinions on politics. And it is so good that I and the other 3,999 of each other have found one another on Facebook so that we can like each other's posts and we can get our news from one another. And we don't need anybody else at this point. It is wonderful. And though we of the not stupid party make up only one one thousandth of the country, we are just so right. And there's a great deal of satisfaction in that. It's gotten to the point where we don't even have to bother listening to anybody else to know what's going on. Turns out C.S. Lewis was exactly right about human nature, but he was a bit of an idiot on the realm of the technology we would use to isolate ourselves. Over the last 30 years, the developed world has gotten more and more urban. We live closer to one another than we have at any point in human history, and yet the result of that is that we also feel more alone and isolated. We thought that instant communication was gonna bring us together with more and more people, but what it has done is it brings us together with Fewer and fewer people, more and more people who are just like us, though those groups diminish the total number of people we are living alongside. We value people less and less for who they are or just because they are our neighbor or next to us. And we value them more and more for what they think and whether or not they think like us. And we have become busy in reducing our neighbors down to their opinions. One day we hope we'll have the technology to reduce our neighbors to nothing at all. And today I want us to hear that this growing isolation and individualism, it matters to Jesus. It is a spiritual condition. And that we cannot be faithful followers of Jesus unless we are able to be present with one another in the flesh. 
This passage that we read today uh, from John chapter 17, this comes from a, a lengthy sermon of Jesus in the book of John that we call the farewell discourse. It is his farewell sermon to his disciples before his crucifixion. It's the last thing that Jesus teaches them before he is arrested. It's huge. It takes up five chapters. It takes up a full quarter of the book of John. And what you heard today are Jesus's last words from his last words. What I'm trying to say is what we just read is really, really important. All of Jesus' words are important. You hear me? Okay. Don't take it wrong. But this is the grand finale. This is Jesus leading up to what he wants to leave as his lasting memory and prayer for the disciples. And we are told that at the very end, in the last words of his last words, when Jesus could have prayed for anything or said anything, he chose to pray and he chose to pray for his disciples. Not just those that were there, but you caught it. I paused when I was there. He prayed not just for the disciples who were there, but for the disciples who would come after. Those who would believe because of their message. In his last words, of his last words, Jesus was praying for us. And what did he pray for us? What would you have wanted Jesus to pray for you? It might have been anything. We might have prayed that, and Jesus might have prayed that we would become really eloquent, that we might be able to, to give his message in just the way that he did. He might have prayed that we had the power to work miracles so that everyone else would believe. He might have prayed for any number of things, but when he prayed, this is what Jesus prayed. He said, I pray that they will be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. At the very end, when he could have prayed for anything, Jesus prayed that we would be one. We've been on the study of a disciple's path for a couple weeks now, and we're, we're looking at the core commitments that we make to our church, that we're gonna support it with our prayers and our presence and our gifts and our service. And when somebody comes and joins us, they become a part of who we are, and we ask them to take those vows. And today we're focusing on the vow, the commitment that we make to one another as a commitment on presence. And when we talk about how it is that we can live out our commitment for presence, what we're talking about is how we can become the answer to Jesus' own prayer. How we can see fulfilled among us what Jesus was praying for, that we might be one just as he is in the Father and the Father is in him. Because we can't be one with each other if we can't be with each other. And if we want to see Jesus' prayer answered, we have to be present to one another. In Paul's letters, he goes on and on. I'm sure you've heard in a variety of the letters where Paul talks about the church as a body of Christ. And that he says that we can't be much of a body if the various parts are cut off from one another, each one doing their own little thing, showing up to support one another when we feel like it or when we feel like we're gonna get something out of it. So let me put it plainly. I am absolutely convinced that you can't be a disciple of Jesus Christ unless you are walking with other disciples. And you can't follow Jesus and have a living faith unless you are living it out in the midst of others who are seeking after him. You can't be a Christian in isolation. It just doesn't work. There were a few years back, the United Methodist Church commissioned a study of 2,000 churches, the ones that were identified as the most effective at making new disciples of Jesus Christ. The measure they used was adult baptisms and adult professions of faith. The churches that were reaching people who had no faith background or had gone far from faith and were becoming Christians 
And not just kind of transferring in or moving from church to another, but we're saying that this church has changed our life. And in the study of the churches that make the biggest difference in people's lives, that see people turn their life around and give a new profession of faith, a new commitment to Jesus Christ, one of the things they found is that there are a whole lot of different kinds of churches that change people's lives. There are big churches and there are small churches. They are churches with male pastors and female pastors. They are churches that have contemporary worship and traditional worship. There are all kinds of churches that God uses to change somebody's life. But the two most common characteristics of churches that have this difference-making DNA is both of the two most common characteristics have to do with our presence. The first thing they found is that difference-making congregations, congregations that change adult lives uh, are, are congregations that have robust and vibrant small groups. The presence of small groups in a church leads to the sort of life transformation that doesn't just end with confirmation or with a moment in high school, but that carries on into uh, one's entire life and that bring new people to the faith who've never heard it before. And the second thing that vital churches share is that they bear fruit when their members worship in a way that engages their whole lives. The study found that it's not about picking the right style. Uh, it's not one style or another, but it's about what does this worship call out of me? How does it affect me in the days to come? It's about people who walk out of there saying, I have to be a little bit different because of what I have heard and seen today. And it is churches that ask people to consider what difference God has made through the presence of others and their presence in worship. The two most vital aspects of a vital church that makes a difference are that they meet in small groups and they have worship that engages their whole lives. They require us to be present to one another. Now, just like last week when we talked about prayer, I believe there are a variety of ways to be present to one another. And that's one of the best things about this church. You heard it earlier, and I'll continue to affirm it. It is a gift and a blessing in this congregation that we have so many different ways to get connected. We have our, our Sunday schools. We have our weekday uh, life groups. We have our supper clubs. We have service groups that get to know one another while doing some other project and becoming a team. We have all sorts of different ways to get connected to one another. And we are, amazed, we are blessed to have amazing worship here that has amazing musicians and amazing people and amazing leadership and an amazing preacher and me when the amazing preacher isn't here. We are blessed. But we are always called to discover where God be calling us to the next step. And just like with prayer, I am absolutely convinced that getting presence right is less about choosing the perfect group or the perfect worship service or the perfect thing, and it is much more about choosing to engage whatever it is you're connected to with all that you are. That means that our worship can't just be the place where we come to offer the best picture of ourselves. It, it has to be the place where we come even when the, the praise has to come out of somebody else's lips. Even when our faith is being carried along by somebody else's today, they can be for us like Aaron and Joshua from Moses. I don't know if you know that old story, that Old Testament story. It's one of my favorites. Moses blessing others and needing his friends to hold his arms up when he gets tired. That can be our worship. A worship that is engaged, a worship that is present to one another is a worship where we can come even when we don't look like we got it all put together, even when we were five minutes late, 10 minutes late, 20 minutes late, getting out of the house and the kids have one shoe on. Maybe that's just my household. Engaged worship is where we can bring our whole selves and our whole lives. 
And if you can give that same dedication, not only to, to worship, but to a group of fellow disciples, people with whom you can share the ups and the downs, the days when you're on top of the world and the times that you are on the struggle bus, if you can find a small group where you can share and live that out, then God can change more things than you know. And I'm not saying this is easy because the church is a human enterprise ordained and blessed by God, but full of people. And so it's full of human frailty. And trust me, I know it. And there are gonna be times when you think that this would just be a lot easier if it could just be you and God. There are gonna be times when you are disappointed by someone, quite often your pastor, who, who doesn't follow through on what you were counting on or didn't respond quite the way you hoped. There's gonna be a moment when the person next to you uh, doesn't leave you feeling all full of joy and cheerfulness. There are going to be times when you are pulled to say, you know, I'm just going to do this on my own. Me and God will be good. I'm going to pray. I'm going to try and do good things. Believe me when I say I know that desire. But if we trust God without learning to trust ourselves to God's people, well, we end up worshiping as a God who's made in our own image. And if we cannot be patient enough to bear with our brothers and sisters, then what on earth makes us presume that we are patient enough to bear with a God who is far more mysterious than we will ever figure out? Jesus prayed, and with the last words of his last words, he prayed that we would be one, just as he and the Father are one. You know, sometimes when we sing that great uh, old hymn, holy, 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 uh, blessed trinity, somebody comes up to me and asks, you know, what does that mean, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What does it mean when Jesus says, says, I pray that they will be one just as the Father and I are one? And I usually have to respond, I don't really know. That's why we have this blessed word mystery for the things we can't quite define. But here's what I do know that you cannot tell the story of God without telling the story of Jesus, without telling the story of the Holy Spirit, without telling the story of what God has been doing since Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And when you can't tell your story without telling the story of your neighbor, you can know you are not worshiping a God who is made in your own image. And I know that if you can tell your story while telling the story of a neighbor, a brother, or a sister, then you are discovering what it means to be one as Jesus Christ and the Father are one. Out of all the things that Jesus could have prayed for, he prayed that we would be one. And did you hear why? Father, I pray that they will be one so that the world might believe. He could have prayed for miracles, he could have prayed that we'd make great arguments and have great opinions on his behalf, but he seemed to think that the thing that would most make the world believe was our unity and our presence with one another. It's not our opinions or our miracles or our best arguments that the world needs to see, it's our presence. And when we are present with one another, then God is present to the world and the world believes. And when we are not present to one another, the world finds it a little harder to believe. And in the middle of a world that can so often be a living hell for people, 
Shouldn't we give them something to believe in? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.